freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, culminators. Thanks for joining me today. I have uh, my good friend, David Reboy, joining us as well. And uh, this is actually his first time on the show alone with me, which is as good as being alone, if not better. Uh, in the past, we were part of the three guys who absolutely do not look the same uh, with Jeff Balaban. Doesn't look anything like either one of us, except to people who've just never seen people who look like people like us. <laughs> I mean, am I right? I don't, I, I, would, I don't think anyone who knows you would think you were me or vice versa. But whenever... No, but we look like relatives because <laughs> it's possible we are. It's, it's likely we are, I guess. Anything going on in the world? Any, you know, uh, anything going on in information wars that would be of interest, you think, to, uh, to, to our listeners? Well, now everybody's talking about, everybody's talking about Ukraine. Um, so, so we can talk about that or, um, or actually what, um, maybe what we can talk about is what's going on in the Middle East today. Tell and, me what's going uh, on in the Middle East today. You know, uh, specifically, well, maybe not today, but it's the general trend since um, uh, we, we've seen, um, you know, we've seen the, the Saudis and the Emiratis sort of go off in the middle of um, in the middle of this this you know kind of let's say pseudo conflict between um, between Russia and and the uh, and the Biden administration. That's, sort a, te- of that's a tease, folks. That's a tease. We'll be getting back to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we we've been seeing um, you know uh, MBS will not uh, take Biden's calls. Um, there's talks about the. Um, the, uh, the 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 petrodollar maybe not disappearing, but but uh, but the the Saudis trading in uh, in Chinese uh, yuan, and um, you know and and sort of all this kind of speaks to a a realignment of traditional allies in uh, in, in the Middle East, especially when it comes to uh, when it comes to the Arab world, and um, you know this is the necessary consequence of policies that this administration pursued and, and really the Obama administration pursued. I mean, we had a small little holiday from history with the Trump administration when it comes to this. I think uh, for, for all, of its, um, all of its faults in some ways and its, and its uh, inability to do follow through, which, which I think was, was you know, the biggest fault, um, it still pretty much got down the basics, which is that at the end of the day, these alliances that the United States has had for you know the last several decades are meaningful and they're important, and there's a reason why we've been dealing with you know the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and and the Israelis for uh, you know for 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 so long, and um, there are consequences to abandoning these alliances, and whether it's small little uh, you know small little insults um, or it's large you know, large, uh, 
diplomatic slights and military slights, we've seen a, a continuation of the Obama uh, administration policy uh, to, to to sort of uh, you know get rid of these alliances, which you know in my mind and in the mind of many other. Uh, people looking at the region has been just completely insane. Um, so and, stop. So stop. So stop there. Yeah. Because I, I asked Lee Smith this question, and he had kind of an answer, but I haven't really gotten great satisfaction on this. I mean, it's it's transparently obvious that now through three administrations, like you said, with a slight hiccup in, in, uh, after year eight, that Obama and his people have decided that the hegemon to balance out Israel is that a hedge, another hegemon is necessary to balance out Israel. And that hegemon should be the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, that sounds insane to us for so many reasons. But there, there must be an animating intelligence, a school of thought out there. Do you have any idea what it could be? Have you ever heard anyone enunciate it rationally? Well, so so this is the thing that makes this this all kind of crazy. Um, the best piece on this, and for the motivations behind it, is was written probably in 20, 2012, 2013 by uh, by Mike Duran at Hudson, and uh, he wrote the uh, the kind of the, the the secret Iran deal or or something like that, and where he talked about the, these motivations exactly, which is to rebalance, you know, not specifically Israel as the regional power, but uh, but Saudi Arabia. So as to stand up Iran to be a counterweight to Saudi Arabia, and um, and you know, I mean, as you said, this is insane in 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 you know a myriad number of ways. But the fact that these guys never really spelled out what they want to do in the region, what their vision of the region is for the U.S. and without the U.S. Um, is, I think, it's really significant, and it's something that um, that they've been fixated on let's say the same cast of characters has been fixated on this this realignment um at least since you know since before the obama administration so it's you know 2008 um they were setting these these things in motion specifically by you know the the 20 uh the 2008 obama campaign bringing on robert malley um, as as an advisor who ended up getting um, you know getting the boot when people found out that he was very close to Hamas. Now, of course, what it, where is he today? Today he is an important member of the team. Um, so so he managed to to rehabilitate himself and come back. Well, they've also um, con they've also constructed a, a a media and messaging system mm -hmm. that has insulated the administration from criticism press inquiry or second guessing as well as doing whatever it was they did to get majorities in both houses so that even somewhat rehabilitation is simply a matter of being appointed because you don't there's no one to justify anyone i mean it is true that there have been a couple of biden um, nominees who are just so over the top that even some democrats couldn't support them but it, you know, rehabilitation is not a gigantic um, trick these days. All right, but sure. please. Sure, sure. And, and the main, the kind of the, the main idea here, though, is, you know, what, what I think gets lost with, uh, with a lot of folks, which I'm, I'm just trying to, to underline, is the fact that you have a massive change in, gener in, a, in, in several generations of U.S. policy. 
okay, you want to change it, make an argument, go right. ahead. Um, you know, let's, let's have it out. Let's, let's put the cards under the table and describe why you think this new arrangement will be better, why you believe empowering Iran is something that is in the US national interest or, or in the interest of our allies. And, and let's, let's, you know, let's, let's talk about it. They knew in 2008, 2009, that this was going to be a total non-starter. The American people would not be on board for this. Um, and that carries off into the present day. I think they've already forgotten how, um, you know, how, you know, even that, that making arguments is an important function exactly. of, uh, you know, of, of a democracy. I mean, they, they talk very, in, in, in uh, you know, very pointed, beautiful uh, terms about, about democracy. But at the end of the day, convincing your fellow Americans about large consequential changes in policy is, you know, and, and, and doing it in the public square, doing it in the media, having that uh, debate and not silencing your opponents. I mean, that is, you know, I mean, that is the definition of democracy. So what's the role? So, all right. And so, so let me get a little conspiratorial here. Sure. What does the, what is the fact that China has made such a huge and successful investment in the United States government have to do with th these changes? C could that be part of the answer? Well, I think that's part of the answer. That's part of the answer really with everything. Um, when you have su such a big issue, when you have you know, the, the second largest economy in the world, you know, the second greatest military power, you know, all these of course have asterisks because we haven't yet really stress tested any of this. Um, these are all numbers on a board that may or may not be meaningless, um, you know, when it comes to actual power and, and projecting it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, well, you, isn't, you've the, got... isn't the Ukraine situation a stress test? Or is it because it's a little bit off center from the stress point that it's not quite a stress test? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a stress test of China. Um, it's, right. it's definitely it's definitely a stress test for uh, for the Russians, and and I think at the end of the day, the Russians are coming up short. Um, you know, there's I, I think everyone concedes that that they will be uh, kind of militarily victorious. It's just a matter of how long this will take, and you know, it's not in their best interest at all. It's not in their interest at all to uh, have a kind of long protracted bloody um uh intervention in um in, in ukraine that's it's just it, you know it just just it, it punctures the the uh you know whatever myth of uh russian military superiority that uh that exists you know not only that the longer it drags on the more the world will come together and penalize russia in in you know far worse ways so it's really it's you know states from the beginning of time have have understood that um you know that if you can win quickly it's better than if you can win slowly um you know for a whole host of reasons and uh and especially in a time when everything is sped up yes a week a week in 2022 is nothing like a week in 1962. you 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 know everything's being reported let me ask you something, you know, because of the information, you know, I don't know if we're even really going to get to a censor, you know, censorship, right? 
mm-hmm. putative topic here. I, I think we're seeing tr- something different from censorship. I'm not hearing of people getting dinged, not nobody, but nobody I know for what that's worth, getting dinged from social media in the Ukraine, Russia war context. What I am seeing is such a phenomenal uniformity of correct opinion that it, it, it has turned me into a sort into quite a Ukraine skeptic. And of course, there's a, a lot of really, really stupid takes that, oh, so you like Russia. Oh, so you're in favor of Nazis. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm trying to point out that there's moral ambiguity in this context and that, the, and that there are a lot of questions about Ukraine. And then when I see the same people, someone made a really good tweet about this, maybe a few people that if the same people who, who swore to us about Russia and Trump and the same people who swore to us about the vaccine and the same people who swore to us about masking and, and lockdowns are all immediately on board, immediately and uniformly on board on Ukraine, that tells that makes me suspicious because I mean these are people, I, you can't these are people who literally won't even acknowledge uh, the facts of life, you know, uh, birds and bees. So, give me some insight as a, yeah. I mean, it's even more uh, you know, it's even more ridiculous than that because in almost all cases, the people who jumped into the Trump Russia conspiracy theories. Um, the hardest are the very ones who are who are heralded as experts here on on Russia and Ukraine. Um, I mean, it's not an accident. You could you could say that the you know I mean you could say that this is a continuation of RussiaGate. Um, you know, right now you've got the same cast of characters. Um, you've got a, a very similar type of moral panic going on, and and the um, the the imperative to uh, to you know not use your brain when it comes to uh, to analysis, especially of of uh, of you know motivations and, and and things like that when it comes to Putin and when it comes to Russia, even asking for motivations is uh, you know is is, uh, is is you know as you said it's heretical it's suspect it makes you you know pro Putin or whatever um, even figuring out what. Or, or trying to figure out, making a good faith effort to try to figure out what Russia's war aims are, um, is met with an avalanche of, you know, of, of, of insanity. And, and look, I mean, I think it's purposeful. I think it's completely purposeful. I have a, maybe a darker view of this. Um, share, I, share. You know. I'm here for you. <laughs> so for the last, um, you know, for at least the last decade in earnest, um, you've had a in in Washington DC and when i say Washington DC i mean everywhere from government to think tanks to media um a and to the halls of congress you know um and and the um the the you know what we call the deep state the the administrative the national security branch of the administrative state nearly you've got near unanimity when it comes to a desire to, um, uh, you know, a, really a desire to go after Russia, and uh, uh, you know, um, you've folks who are very, 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 very hawkish on Russia 
and specifically hawkish on Ukraine. And this, this crowd in DC is so insular that even the slightest bit of, uh, you know, of, of, let's say, reality resistance is met with uh, you know, incomprehension and furor. And uh, you know, people just freak out from this. And um, I mean, you've got the situation where you've got Vindman, you know, who is a as partisan a Ukrainian nationalist as it gets. And really, in working, any other time period, would it would have been tried for insubordination, it, it, and probably uh, some you know some violation of of the national security. Uh, uh, laws. I mean, what, what, sure, his, sure. But even prior was... to that, even prior to that, the guy was there. The guy was in the room. His job was literally as the you know director or senior director um, for Ukraine and in the U.S. government in the National Security Council. Now that's a big job, and to put that job in the hands of someone who is so emotionally um, invested in the topic, you know, not even as a it's like putting um, yeah. Jonathan Pollard, uh, yeah. it, you know, in the uh, as the as the Israel in charge of the Israel desk. I mean, right? You can agree or disagree with the point of view, but he's not the guy to give dispassionate advice to the president of the United States. Right, and you know, up and down. I mean, he's certainly not the only one. I mean, he's the only you know Ukrainian, but you know, some people like Fiona Hill and 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 um, and what's her name? Uh, uh, the um, uh, the, the former ambassador, Yankalovich, or, 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 or something, I'm forgetting how to pronounce her name. Um, I mean, all of these people are kind of hardcore, hardcore, you know, partisans. And then um, it occurred to me when this whole thing was, was, sort of, um, was sort of winding up and getting started that, that uh, kind of fanatical support for Ukraine and fanatical opposition to Russia is something that is unique in Washington, D.C., which is it is shared by both political appointees and career um, diplomats. Do they all have a piece which, of the action? Which was really interesting. No, I mean, I, I think what it is, is I've, I've, I wrote a piece uh, at my Substack at Late Republic Nonsense um, uh, uh, kind of about this and, and, and how it formed. I think the basic gist of Ukraine is that uh, Western oligarchs went and gobbled up large parts of Ukraine because it was cheap. You know, um, it was not in, uh, it was not in Eastern Europe already by then, Poland and Hungary and, and, and places like this were expensive because they were, you know, pretty much guaranteed they were part of Europe. And uh, when a country gets into, you know, quote unquote Europe, whether that means NATO or the EU or, 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 or just kind of colloquially known as Europe, um, the, the prices go up because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more valuable. And, um, and these folks thought and on the other that, hand, it's a better, it's a more valuable and interesting investment than Belarus where, sure. you, where, it, where the, the rates are cheap as well. Is this the one, the article, Ukraine and the NGO archipelago? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Everyone head over to late Republic nonsense, pick up, read the article and, um, subscribe. Uh, so, so uh, I just wanted to say, uh, Bela Belarus is it's it's not even the Harlem of 
you know, of, of, of Asia Minor? Is this Asia? Yeah, that's that's not going to be part of it. Belarus Central, is not going to be Central part Asia. of Europe anytime soon. Right. Okay. Um, you know, but but Ukraine has a chance. And the people who went in and invested a whole lot of money in buying that infrastructure and 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 you know making and investing in Ukraine, um, they knew what it would, you know, they knew what it would take. And what it would take would be a West, you know, led by the United States, but certainly not limited to it. Um, a, a Western established political establishment that was, um, you know, that was determined to pull Ukraine towards the West. Now, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily have a moral problem with that. The problem I have with that at the end of the day is it ignores the map. And, you know, Ukraine and Russia have always been tied, you know, uh, uh, aside from the, the, um, um, aside from the history, I mean, just look at the map. Um, Russia is a great power. Russia will always be a great power. Either it will be, you know, um, you know, in in ascent or in decline. But it's it's you know, it's a it's a fact of life. It's 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 geographic reality. And um, any Russian government would see the encroachment of the West into um, you know territory that it feels as if it's. Um, it's it's you know part of its uh, you know natural sphere of influence, as, uh, as as threatening, and I mean that's the truth. I mean we can talk about and, and vilify Putin you know all we want, and and you know I mean God knows he deserves it. But the truth of the matter is any Russian um, you know any Russian leader would be as alarmed as Putin is over the expansion of NATO, and 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 it's you know of course it's more than just NATO. It's the idea of the West. Well, and, and also, though, I mean, the corruption aspect is, I think, a big factor, too, because if it, if Ukraine becomes the Cuba of the 21st century, uh, the, the, you know, the um, Batista Cuba, where basically it was a, a corrupt outpost of American colonialism, which it was, um, but here it's actually official. You know, the United States government and the people who who own and operate it are also op owning and operating it, uh, Ukraine as as a franchise, uh, its government as a franchise. That's in a way even more troubling than than NATO because NATO is is chess pieces on a board, and you understand, you know, things are more or less as they appear when you've got a maybe not hostile but a rivalrous uh, regime on your border and your your biggest rival and your you know with all the like you said all the emotional impact that the west and the united states in particular has for any russian leader any post-soviet russian leader um basically running it that's just not going to be good for your interests imagine if it's you know you don't have to make talk about the Monroe Doctrine. It's just not healthy. It's not you know I, I, I think it's it's remarkable, except that it's not remarkable how there's just been no examination in the mainstream press of what the nature of this Ukraine regime is. Have you noticed, Dave, how the um, the messaging and the style of almost everything the Ukrainians have done is right out of the old, uh, the old PLO playbook. I don't mean so much the new one, 
because the new one is out is there's no PLO anymore, but maybe there is, but now outright violence and hatred are actually cool. So they, but the old Yasser Arafat walking around in fatigues and, you know, being, you know, rebel chic kind of, I mean, I just keep seeing these notes being played and they're just being yes. lapped up just, just as they were in the seventies by, by, by with, Yaraf, with Arafat. Yeah, yes. I noticed that too. And, um, and it's interesting because I've, you know, I've remarked about, uh, I've remarked about, I mean, I first started to see it when, you know, Zelensky would show up and I mean, this is kind of quieted down now, but for a while there, every, but just about every 12 hours, he would have a fake story and he would be promoting a fake um, you know, a fake Russian um, uh, attack or, you know, or something, what, what, you know, the details of which, you know, didn't matter, but, but, you know, they were debunked within, you know, within minutes or hours, um, of course, and the press would dutifully report it. And, you know, you even had such shamelessness. I mean, it reminded me exactly, as you said, of the Palestinians, you had such shamelessness, you even had mainstream media writing that like, you know, we know he's lying. But it's cool, you know. It, it, this, is, this is kind of very 1990s uh, Bill Clinton thing. Like, you know, everybody lies, and and you know, in the in the service of uh, in the service of getting what they want. And it's war. And after all, didn't the, didn't right. the British try to trick FDR about you know a, a plot in Latin America? Uh, you know, all is fair in love and war, and he's fighting for survival. And by right. the way, don't I'm, you know Putin lies all the time? Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, I even went back and I watched uh, my old friend Richard Landis's uh, great uh, Pallywood uh, films, uh, which were about this and which were about manufacturing narratives. And, you know, the, um, the, the, the great thought and effort that goes into, you know, creating these things. And, and oftentimes they're completely fake or they contain a tiny kernel of truth. And, um, you know, it... it it manifests itself in atrocity porn and nobody wants to be the one to say, Oh no, no, this is uh, you know, like, you know, this is, this is not true. This is all fake. This is all, you know, because, because those people get, get slammed if there's even a, you know, a hint of uh, you know, of reality to the story. Um, but this has been the, you know, this has been Zelensky's uh, you know, shtick from the Bobby Yar, um, you know, bombing that actually did not occur um, to the, um, you know, to the the fake Russian plot to blow up the nuclear plant and and the and the, the you know the, the nuclear so-called nuclear um, you know leakage that was coming out that the IAEA had to you know had to totally shoot down within you know within minutes and and and, um, and I I don't know the I don't know the reliability of these reports any more than I know the reliability of stuff that's coming out of official Ukraine or unofficial Ukrainian sources. But one thing I, I, I'm hearing is that, for example, the, the troops were placed near, are being placed near or even in installations, Palestinian style, um, precisely. For, and, and, and why would you do that? Because it works really well. It right. Worked, no, it, no. The it, hospital story. The maternity words story. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a classic one. If you're familiar at all with, um, you know, with with the, the kind of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, this is exactly what happens. You know, the maternity ward gets bombed and there are 
you know, there's, you know, one, one casualty, um, you know, there's this, you know, one, you know, apl kind of applicable casualty. I mean, obviously one, one casualty is, is, is terrible, but the image that, that the Ukrainians are trying to project is one of, um, you know, of, of mass genocidal violence on the part of the Russians. And this now, works when you have a pre, when there's a, when, when, when your adversary is already accepted as the bad guy. Okay. That's what happens. In other words, with Israel as the bad guy in the Middle East for everyone except those it's not. And Putin, as you say, in, in the American elite and in the media, for some reason, is, is a James Bond villain. I mean, he's just, you know. Right. So why are they doing this? You know, and this is this is, uh, you know, a, a, an important point. Um, you know, why are they doing this? Why are they um, pushing the most extreme propaganda? You know, you have the story that he's, you know, that 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 Putin is crazy, that he's lost touch with um, reality, that he's um, uh, that you know he's he's medically compromised, he's gone insane, he's you know all these things, and and you know absurdly enough, they're being put out exactly like RussiaGate stories were put out, which is intelligence, you know, Five Eyes intelligence sources say, um, you know, leaking to the Daily Mail or something, and you know, by the way, as an aside, the UK media has probably been the worst far worse than the US media. The UK media has just been lapdogs of their intelligence establishment. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. Um, but um, I mean, nearly everything coming out of the UK press is just like, it's, it's you know, it's abominable propaganda. It's, it's just laughable stuff. Um, but, uh, but the larger issue is this, which is why do it? So if you want to make you know, the, the effort to make Putin into someone who is unreasonable, who is the new Hitler, who um, is the personification of evil, who wants to, you know, do a genocide in Ukraine and take all of, all, over all of Europe. Like, what do you get from that? What you get from that is you get, you convince the population that there is no peaceful settlement that is possible with this person. Um, you get continued pounding of war drums. Um, you get... Uh, you know, you, you get into the position where the Ukrainians themselves may want to make a deal, but world global opinion is pushing them not to make a deal. Right, right. Yes. So that's the situation we find ourselves in today, which is that if tomorrow we wake up and there's a ceasefire or there's some kind of agreement that is, you know, that is at all similar to uh, to Russia's demands on Ukraine, you know, that are pretty much unchanged from the start, um, the whole world is going to turn around and say, wait a minute, we, ex we expected, you know, valiant bloodletting, um, you know, uh, war drama here, you know, we expected you to fight to the last man. Um, I think that's deeply cynical. Yeah, um, really. And, it's, other and, it's other people's, you know, heroism that yeah. you're insisting on. You know, we're 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 doing this. Well, we're doing all of this this uh, this war porn. Everybody is changing their avatars to include the Ukrainian flag. Um, you know, they're um, we're we're you know pushing them to fight to the death, and here we are. Um, you know, we're we're creating an obstacle for them to make to make an eventual settlement. And at the end of the day, we don't have to live there. You know, we don't give a damn what happens there. At the end of the day. 
um, you know, as much as we but, but, sentimentally but feel the next like Holocaust, we do. But it's Holocaust, but it's the Holocaust, but it's right. Right. So this is, so this is why, um, you know, I mean, there's a little tiny glimmer of hope in the, uh, in the, in the avalanche of propaganda, because we saw Zelensky give a speech in front of the Knesset or, or piped into the Knesset in which he, uh, you know, did his usual uh, over the top thing and compared the Ukraine war to the Holocaust and, and, uh, and, and kind of whitewashed the history of Ukraine when it comes to its dealings with Jews and its slaughter of Jews throughout the Second World War. And a lot of folks in Israel said, hold on a minute. You know, this is too much for us. This is, uh, you know, this is uh, completely absurd. And it was a little bit of reality check that was that was needed. Um, but, um, you know, but it looks like it's working elsewhere in the world, which, you know, which is, uh, which is, which is troubling. I mean, look, I mean, at the end of the day here, it's the Ukrainians that are going to have to make a settlement of some kind. They're going to have to live with Russia, their more powerful neighbor. Um, you know, when, when I say something like that, of course, the neocons come back and they come back with the thing that they've been saying for the last, you know, 15 years or 10 years or so, which is, no, we need regime change in Russia. Um, you know, like, Right, exactly. I don't even know. I don't even know what to know what to say at that point. Well, you know, it, it's like it, it's it's the domino theory, but the dominoes have to go uphill. <laughs> right. And they're six inches apart from each other. <laughs> I mean, it's so preposterous. Uh, imagine, imagine, imagine how blinkered and you know, out of your mind you have to be to look at America in 2022 and think to yourself, you know what? I think we need to undertake. I need to think we need to forget about the 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 our, our all of our internal divisions. Um, I think we need to forget about the precarious and and you know and uh, and and terrible state of our of our economy. Um, I think we need to forget about the threat of China, but now we need to focus on regime change in Russia. Why? Because good versus evil. Um, I think someone who is and Ukraine pushing is, that and Ukra is just Ukraine fundamentally is an, unserious. And Ukraine is an, is, an, is, an, is, is an obvious good. It's an obvious good. And I've been putting right. screenshots of, you know, of, of people's tweets. You know, the Nazi factor here, I mean, you know, Nazi has become such a meaningless figure here, but except in, in the Ukraine context, there's nothing meaningless about it either historically because of the the well-established connection between Ukrainians and actual genocide, um, which, and, and I'm a very, very big foe of group responsibility and group guilt and group punishment. But now let's look at 2022 and you've got this Azov uh, battalion, which is essentially a neo-Nazi a formation that is part of the Ukrainian government, and no one has even denied that. Has it been? Has it been denied? Probably at some level, right? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. It's hard to. It's hard or impossible to you know to to deny. But here, I think we need to um, we need to make a little distinction. Um, we maybe it's useful to say Nazi, like capital N Nazi, meaning the actual Nazis, and you know, like the actual. Uh, historical national socialists in, um, you know, in, in Germany and elsewhere, you know, and uh, of course, you know, come to think of it in, in Ukraine today, 
and the colloquial, you know, Nazi, you know, uh, lowercase n um, that exists in the leftist imagination as a cudgel to use against all their enemies. Well, that's exactly. See, so I, I, I just now, while, you know, searching for, for screen content, I came up with Glenn Greenwald, who, Greenwald, who as usual is completely seeing things in an original fashion. And he has got these two screenshots here from the Times, you know, the Azov group, openly neo-Nazi, and then another Ukraine's far right Azov battalion. Um, and his comment is, in 2015, it was neo-Nazi. In, in the Times now, it's far right. And as you see, he says, all you have to do to lose your status as a Nazi is to fight on the side of the US. It's, I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, probably the Azov guys are uh, no friends of ours, no friends of ours. Um, and, you know, boy, I mean, Majid Nawaz has been coming on. He has been utterly- yeah, he's been he's been talking about this and he's utterly on, unapologetic. He on, yeah, I mean, he was on Tucker last night and I thought it was a, um, yeah, I thought it was a, a good point that he made, which it says he had reminds him of uh, of Syria. Um, which is an excellent point, which is another another um, issue that kind of inexplicably the neocons have been obsessed with, um, all out of proportion uh, for the last, you know, you know, almost a decade now or, or a decade now, um, which, which is in Syria, you've got um, Iran and the Russians um, fighting, you know, alongside Assad against um, you know, against Al Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood, and you know, all this is to say that um, you know, all this is to say that there's you know this this situation is not advantageous for us um, to the extent you know only to the extent that both lose, um, you know. But uh, but throughout the Syrian uh, civil war, you had similar people coming out and saying, well, no, this is moderate Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, this is moderate Al-Nusra. This is, you know, um, you know, these are these are guys that uh, that we should support because they're fighting the greater enemy and blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, all of this is, but again, you know, big, all of this is nonsense. It's nonsense. And it also circles us back to the beginning, which is there is a vision out there which has never been the subject of any advocacy and which in, inevitably is the product of some uh, 1990s academic work that influences the foreign policy people who move into power in the first decade of the 21st century. And in the second decade of the second of the 21st century became more senior and eventually, you know, move into the, into the white house. And it, it, but to a large extent, it seems, in other words, if to the extent that's the Saudi Arabia, dislodging Saudi Arabia was the motivation. It also seems to be stuck on a Saudi Arabia of 15 years ago and 20 years ago. And I don't want to be um, rose colored over the nature, nature of the Saudi Arabian of life in Saudi Arabia today, but this is an outright ally. This is this is by far our best Arab friend in the world today, and that that doesn't seem to move this crew at all. 
Right. Yeah, look, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's a, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, both left and right who are, you know, for their own reasons are stuck in a Saudi Arabia of the past. Uh, people who are talking, you know, when, when talking about when 9-11, up, they're talking, yeah, they're talking about 9-11, you know, MBS was what, nine years old, um, you know, maybe or, or, or even younger. Um, the Saudi Arabia today is far different than, 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 you know, the Saudi Arabia of, of, of the past um, in almost, in almost every way. Um, but that's not, I know, I don't even think that's the main point. The main point is at the end of the day, again, look at the map. There will always be a Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will always control, you know, to a great extent, um, you know, control the price of oil in the world. Oil is a thing that we need. You know, um, I, a lot of people don't know this. I mean, it's it's really kind of basic stuff that uh, that that most of the American people just are are not aware of. But at the end of the day, you know, why does Saudi Arabia um, control the price of oil? Well, it, it controls the price of oil because not only do they have a lot of it, they have a lot of it just below the surface of the ground, which means it's very, very cheap for them to, uh, to, to for them to bring it out of the ground. Um, you know, U.S. oil production, Russian oil production, um, oil production elsewhere in the world is more expensive to extract. What does that mean? That means that oil has to be of a, at, at a certain price point for it to be even worth taking out of the ground because it's so expensive. In, I thought all you had to do was, was shoot at some food and then right. up from the ground would come a bubbling ooze. Or maybe that was just, you know, for the Beverly Hillbillies. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and people forget the role that the Saudis played in the Cold War. I mean, this is, you know, this was a. a well, a, forget a million... it. I think very few people are aware of it. Are aware of it, right? I mean, they 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 don't even know. I mean, you know, Reagan understood, and this was a very clear strategy um, uh, articulated in the National Security Directive. Well, the AWACS that, sale, right? That it was well, it was um, it was. I have to I have to ask um, uh, you know our friend David Goldman because he was uh, actually intimately involved in this. But uh, but the U.S. the Reagan administration realized that. Um, that the that the Soviet economy basically ran only on oil, and it decided, you know what, we're going to bankrupt these guys, and we're going to do it by asking the Saudis to, um, you know, to to dramatically lower the price of oil, so that the Russians, uh, you know, can't make money because it costs them far too much to extract. Now this worked. This worked like a charm. Um, it was um, it was you know economic warfare of you know of uh, of you know of a kind of very sophisticated uh, time. And is that and, is, how did Reagan convince the Saudis to do it? I guess the AWACS sale and other things like that, uh, strategic concession or, or tactical concessions, were part of that. Sure, package. they had to make it. They had to make it worth the um, uh, Saudis' while. On one hand, on the other hand, too, is is you know this caused a recession in Texas. This, you know, Reagan was not well liked in Texas because of this, because the, the, the you know, the, the price of oil crashing in, you know, in, in Dallas specifically um, was a kind of local calamity. Um, and Reagan didn't like it. He was, you know, he, he, he felt terrible about it. But on one hand, you have the people of, uh, you know, of, of in, in the oil industry in the US. And on the other hand, you have the larger goal, which is winning the Cold War against, um, you know, against the Soviets. And and I think he chose wisely. I didn't forget know, at, any at, of this, Dave. Of I, I never knew it. You just taught me something. And I was 
Oh really? I was. I, I I need to I need to to remember which uh, which directive it is. I'll 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 go and I'll, That's and I'll tweet it. I'm I'm terrible with numbers, but it was it was you know it was it's a, it's a known thing. Uh, Peter Schweitzer writes uh, compellingly about it in a book called Reagan's War. Um, the stuff is, you know, Dave. The stuff yeah. you know, and we I've been pumping you. You've been it's a pump. But you're like the Saudi Arabia of of uh, of foreign affairs. Because uh -oh. It's all right beneath, right beneath the um, surface. I don't have to dig very deep, but we're coming up on 50 minutes, and it's just not fair to you or to people who are who want to say they listen to every episode, but that they're sitting in the parking lot when their wives are wondering why they don't come in for dinner. So, fantastic discussion, Dave. You you know it's great having you on. Um, you know, great chatting with you, even when we're not having barbecue. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon. A anything uh, in particular going on that I should be telling people about uh, besides late Republic nonsense, which everybody has to subscribe to? No, everyone should subscribe to it. Uh, thanks so much, Ron, for having me on. You're one of my favorite people in, uh, in, oh, thank in you. the whole, you know, political space. Thank uh, you. You know, a, a, a true original. Um, and uh, and you're you're fearless. And um, oh boy, it's you know, that that means I must have done some really stupid stuff that no one. <laughs> no one else well, look, I mean that's 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 part of the deal. I think I think we all do that. I think part of I mean, we we spoke about this. You know, part of what uh, makes us uh, you know interesting or or decent you know to follow on Twitter um, is that uh, we just say what we think and. You know, at the end of the day, it's not studied. That's it. Uh oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> These days is not studied. You're saying, say it again. I don't know if you got that background noise. No, no, oh, I, you I got it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, um, I think uh, that's what we're here for. You know, that's yeah. That's that's who we are. Um, and so goes it. You know, my wife doesn't listen to my podcast because. She loves me and she wants to keep loving me. Um, but so I can say something here, you know, being an original, as you put it, saying what you really, saying really what you have to say is not, it is the, the road less taken. And, you know, it comes at something of a cost, even, even if you remain employed, even if you aren't banned, you know, you're, you're not going to make it in the corporate world. You're not going to make it in big institutions. A lot of people are going to not want to, to, to take the risk of having um, uh, squeaky wheels and loose cannons around. But we have each other. And maybe truth wins out a little bit along the way. Exactly. David, thank you thank so you. much.